to your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. And I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey there. And so we will continue into Second Chronicles, Second Kings and Romans. And so um, we pick up with uh, a story that should be a bit familiar already with Jehoshaphat and uh, him allying with Ahab, though the chronicler certainly seems to add some some details that it does definitely does seem like Jehoshaphat's desires to really work out things with the northern kingdom. He even has son, Mary Ahab's daughter. There's some intermarriage that's included in the storyline. And so um, there's definitely some sort of um, push in his mind to figure out a way to reconcile in some ways with the north. But, yeah, which in some regard mm. is honorable, but he's also kind of gets a hard time for partnering with yeah, Ahab at least, as well. at least a prophet calls him out for it. But um, yeah, we're not going to rehash all the details of the Ahab 400 prophets and Ahab dying stories necessarily. Um, but Jehoshaphat uh, has some reforms. Um, or, uh, and, and he does get called out by Jehu, as we just said, for working with the Northern folks. But um, at the same time, like he isn't the worst king. He, he does these reforms. He resets up the priests and the Levites in Jerusalem to, to judge and to judge fairly, uh, to judge equitably, equitably uh, the people. And so um, there's, some, there's some good things happening. Yeah. I mean, it makes us think of, of Jethro and Moses setting up judges and, um, and it's good leadership, which we haven't seen in a long, long time. So it's kind of refreshing. And then it immediately moves into this cool story where it's a long chapter. The author slowed down to really hit on how God worked through Jehoshaphat. Yeah, these these foreign groups, the Moabites and the Ammonites, decide to take kind of their shot at Judah at this time. And they're outmatched. Judah's outmatched. But Jehoshaphat does what he should. He asks God for help. Um, and, and he actually... Uh, almost calls God to the things that he said. He's basically like, God, you promised that like when we come to you in these situations that you would hear us. So here we are. What, what do we do? And God speaks and says, hey, you're going to have victory. And, and so they, they go to battle, but not really like they kind of go to battle by worshiping. Uh, they have this choir. Uh, they're, they're out there with robes and, and worshiping. And so, um, instead of fighting with swords and things like that, the Lord ends up setting this ambush for the Moabites and Ammonites. They end up fighting each other and Jehoshaphat gets the victory out of it all. Yeah. I think this is something that we can learn from <clears throat> worship is warfare is, is a legitimate practice that we should probably all operate in. The people gathered together when they were under pressure and, you know, death was imminent. They gathered together, they sang and they praised the Lord and, uh, they were taken down. The, the bad guys were taken down and they didn't, um, they pause, they sang thanks, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. So where are you struggling? Where do you feel like you're coming up against something? And what does worshiping God look like? Not just on a Sunday when someone else is playing the music, but in your car or on your own, let's, let's worship as a form of warfare against the attacks of the enemy. And the Israelites enjoy the spoils of this war. Uh, they take a bunch of stuff in the process, and the surrounding countries end up not uh, attacking Judah for a while, which is pretty wise on their part. Uh, and Jehoshaphat reigns for 25 years. Um, and there's a little bit of an incident with these boats, but God destroys the boats, and then we move on. It's like random details added into the story. Yeah, it's, it's refreshing to read about Jehoshaphat's devotion to the Lord. We see it rarely, and we... Um 
and we'll continue to see it rarely. But I think a sad component of it is what we read here too, is that the people had not yet set their hearts upon the God of their father. So it's difficult work to lead a people to obedience. And we're seeing here that as much as we need a strong leader that we emphasize over and over again, we need a strong godly leader. Uh, It's going to take more than just that one individual to draw the people back to God. We need the Lord himself to come and do it. Yep. And speaking of a terrible leader, um, we, we move back to the north where uh, Ahaziah uh, falls through the cracks, but then he's like, oh, I need to call out to Beelzebub and see if he's what he has to say about whether or not I'll live or die. And so he sends his messengers to go find out the answer to that. And along the way, they run into Elijah and Elijah's like, well, yeah, the king's going to die. And they bring back the news to, to the king and he's like, who said this? And he started to describe Elijah. And I almost take like a, this is like a Newman moment for Seinfeld where, where the king's suddenly like, Elijah, ah, like, that's exactly what he's thinking of. It's like his nemesis. Um, and so uh, 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 Ahaziah uh, sends out three different waves of 50 men to go to Elijah. And, and the first two are like, they show up and they're like, we have this word from the king and Elijah basically basically calls on lightning or fire to destroy them. Uh, but the third one, the third king or the third captain uh, kneels and, and doesn't say anything about the king when he comes in. And ultimately Elijah spares him in a way. Um, and, uh, and Elijah repeats the fact that the king's going to die and that's exactly what happens. It's a crazy story. Yeah, I think the aim here is for people to know again and see that God is sovereign over Israel and that Yahweh is the true ruler. Ahab sent the messengers to get Elijah to retract the curse, but God overpowers them through Elijah. Elijah basically represents the mouthpiece of God to these northern kingdoms of Israel. And no matter how hard, did I say Ahab? I meant Ahaziah. Yeah. Um, how hard he tries to gain control or to be the most powerful man in Israel. He still loses because of God's sovereign control and rule over the people. And uh, we'll continue to see these sort of patterns of behavior throughout scripture, but it's cause for us to step back and the people to step back and remember who's really in charge. Yeah. And, and there might be a little bit, uh, some people will feel like, Oh, that seems so unfair. He's captain and he's man. But at the same time, like, Ahaziah is clearly a terrible king, um, and there's some Baal worship tied into him, and they're coming as representatives. I mean, if even modern politics is anything like, look, association with the terrible leader is still association, and um, and so these these individuals are, are doing that, and it's actually the third one who doesn't mention the king at all that, that ends up getting spared, and so, yeah. And who references the third one who references life as precious, yeah, which we hadn't absolutely. seen either. And then um, we get the pretty famous story of Elijah being taken up to heaven. Uh, some tradition, and and it's it's a re, it's an interesting uh, interpretation, is that like Elijah is so fiery and so kind of. St- stubbornly fiery around the things of God that God actually eventually just retires him. Like Elijah is, is so stubborn in a way that like sometimes it's, he's d- difficult to understand, see perspective and all these kind of things. So, like he has so much zeal that God ends up sort of just bringing him home. Um, now that's extra biblical. I don't know about the interpretation, but it's one way to sometimes view like, why does Elijah get to out of all the people? Like, why is it Elijah that gets this moment? Um, but Elijah seems to know how, know that his life is going to end, but he's not necessarily sure how there's no sense that he's been told that he's going to be taken up by this fire and stuff like that. But he commands uh, Elisha uh, that he would like see this happen, uh, that Elijah's end um, 
however it's going to end, it's going to be something that Elisha is going to have a very clear seeing. And Elisha asked for a double portion. Um, now, it, that doesn't mean twice as much Holy Spirit or twice as much necessarily power. Um, the idea of double portion would immediately, at least in the Jewish mind, tie you into this idea of the firstborn, which is really the the heir. Like the firstborn's job is to carry on the role of the father, to continue in the business of the father, to carry on the name of the father. And so um, this is the prophetic mantle being sort of asked for by Elisha of going, let me be the one to carry on the, the work that you have done, Elijah. Let me have the responsibility of the prophet in the north, whatever whatever the specifics of the job would be. And so, yeah. Yeah, and let's not forget the symbolism here behind the fact that it happens at the Jordan River. Yeah. And so you see Moses hand off kind of leadership to Joshua and they cross the Jordan. This happens here. And then we see John the Baptist baptize Jesus in the Jordan River. And then the spirit descends on Jesus. And so there's this passing on of ministry tasks that seems to happen at the Jordan. And again, we're following this thread of God's plan to redeem all people throughout scripture. So though we don't talk about Elisha as much as we talk about Elijah, Elisha plays a very, very important role in pointing us to Christ. Yeah, and there's so many Moses parallels to, to Elijah's life. Like, yeah, he received the revelation of the God at Mount Horeb. His slaughter of the uh, the slaughter of the prophets of Baal echoes sort of the aftermath of the Golden Calf incident. Like, he, he crossed the east side of the Jordan, and and not only the crossing of the Jordan, but the crossing of Jordan itself has callbacks to the Red Sea, and it was also where Moses's life basically ends. And Moses's life sort of ends in this sort of mysterious sort of end to it all. And, and Elijah has sort of this quick and mysterious end as well. And so there, there's definitely a lot of overlaps between the Moses to Joshua stories and transitions and Elijah to Elisha's. Yeah. And you know, Elijah fulfilled God's purpose for him and it maybe was what Elijah wanted it to be, or maybe it wasn't. I mean, he had a difficult life. He struggled with suicidal thoughts and depression and remained obedient even when he felt like he was the only one, but God used him according to his will and plan. Yep. And so Elisha, um, we get sort of the opening story where he's sort of taken over the mantle in a lot of ways. Um, and, and it's confirmed like, God, God somehow supernaturally is confirming that yes, this transition is is part of my desire, and, and so we get the confirmations. We get the parting of the Jordan story. We get a turning of deadly water into drinkable water, and then the mauling of these kids with the she bears. And so, um, maybe there's more symbolism in here, like Moses, maybe in Joshua, the the parting of the Red Sea or the parting of the Jordan. Uh, maybe like the waters of Mara that 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 Moses was part of that story where the water wasn't drinkable, and then the tree goes in, and then it's drinkable. Um, and, and I don't know about the mauling of the kids. It's it's one of the strangest stories to me in scripture, but um, it certainly shows some power on Elisha's part. Yeah. So one of the things I heard when I was listening to a podcast about this, because it is confusing and difficult, is that uh, one of the primary sources of Baal and Asherah worship happened in Bethel. And so these boys kind of mocking Elisha, they were not just mocking this guy because he was bald, but they were mocking and rejecting, again, the mouthpiece and a man of God himself. And so the judgment was coming not just on these necessarily on these boys for making fun of someone, but for rejecting God and on the city itself. You would think if the stories of Elijah had gotten around, you're like, uh, maybe we shouldn't mock this guy. Because <laughs> uh, the last time people challenged one of God's prophets, it didn't go so well. Yeah, so. but I want to talk about the parting of the waters too, because I just think this is a cool parallel. Yep. So Elijah parting and crossing the Jordan is sort of a prophetic picture of what's to come, the exile where Israel be, will be forced out of the promised land. Um and then he left, Elijah left Israel in the same way that Israel entered the promised land. So then Elijah crossed the Jordan 
back and came back into the city of Jericho. And so we see again this picture of the reversal of the curse of the bitter water in that town. So we see Elisha's almost first prophetic act being uh, foretelling the reversal of the curse of exile. And so again, there's going to be a connection there to Christ and his work of redemption. Yeah. It's always important to know like going east often has a has a a negative connotation and returning west is always a positive. And so we get both parts of the story uh in Elijah and Elisha. Yeah. Romans. Yep. So um we left off where um Paul was certainly talking about his struggles, but yet no condemnation in Jesus. And so he starts talking about sufferings. And so uh, your your immediate context was sort of the internal struggle with sufferings. But I think Paul broadens that quite a bit um, as he starts talking about creation and all these other things that are also uh, suffering, that there's a real picture and struggle, which Paul just came off of, of how things should or could be and how things still are. And, and Paul even saying like, look, like I, I should be, I should be truly a, a slave to righteousness, but yet I still have these struggles. I still have moments where I sin and I, my desire is not there, but I still do it. And, and it's this internal conflict and creation itself is dealing with that, that there's a way things should be even in the creative order yet they're still not there. And so we struggle, but we hope and we look forward to the restoration of all things, but we have to endure now, but it's hope that helps us endure. And, and we even pray around these things, but maybe we even struggle what to pray for between the reality of the future versus the reality of, of the present. And, and so though, even the Holy spirit helps us, even in our ignorance, like the Holy spirit helps us in these prayers that, that as we struggle through suffering, as we struggle through these things, like we don't struggle independently of, of the spirit's work. And not only that, but like we, we shouldn't let our struggle make us think that God's not for us. Like God is still completely for us that, that in our pain and our, in our struggle, that God is still absolutely there before the foundations of the world. Like those he, he predestined and, and, and he's making more into the image of Christ. Like he's going to um, glorify in the end. Like that is the trajectory. We're just not there yet, but don't think your struggle is God not being for you. God is absolutely for you. I think Something that we need to continue to remind ourselves of is that our uh, suffering is redemptive and it is not for nothing and it is not wasted for those of us who are in Christ, but it is preparing us to know the Lord now and forever in glory. And it's only negative. I mean, it's difficult for everybody, but suffering is really only negative when experienced apart from faith. And and the other thing I want to mention is this Romans eight twenty eight, which we all quote a lot, how God works for the good of those, for his glory and for for our good, right? Um, it's in songs and everything like that, but we often neglect the last half of that verse, which says, for those who are called according to his purpose. We should love this verse. It's the source of our optimism and our hope as Christians. But this promise is for those who are in Christ, for those who are called according to a purpose to God's purpose. And so let's make sure as we cling to and reference that verse that we understand the context of it and the benefits that we have as those who've been saved and know the Lord. Yeah. And, and Paul kind of finishes up like, like even, even in our struggle with the flesh and our struggle, uh, with still sin or our struggle with self-righteousness or our struggle to, to do all these sort of things. Like we have to remember that, that God is for us and no, there's no amount of our self-condemnation, no amount of internal, external pressures, no amount of, of, 
of Caesar, no amount of angels, none of those things are ever going to separate us from the love that we have in Christ Jesus and through God. And so there's no power in the world that can do that. We are bonded to the God of love. And so um, even as he deals with the suffering and the creation, all these kind of things, and he's he's driving home just just how radical and, and how strong God's love is towards us. Yeah, it's that one it's that sure and secure thing is that the steadfast love of God endures forever. Even thinking back to what we just read about in that battle where they sang and they worship God in a steadfast love, we get to do that as well. And in the midst of so many uncertain things and so many uh, failed and broken promises, we can trust the love of God and its constant presence with us eternally. Yep. And then we move into chapter nine, which is one of the more debated or controversial, maybe chapters in scripture and plenty of, have weighed in and whether this is about individuals, whether about corporate Israel, what does God's foreknowledge really look like? Um, does he, is it fatalistic, all that kind of stuff. And so we'll, we'll do what we can to help parse that out with you guys. Um, oh, I'm pretty sure you're not going to get the answers that you want. <laughs> but Paul, Paul opens this chapter, this chapter that we know with like this deep, sadness for his other Jews who don't seem to have gotten this. Now I, I want to be clear, like, it's not like Paul's the only Jewish convert ever speaking. Like we've seen from the book of Acts, there are plenty of Jews who followed Jesus and were disciples of Jesus. And every town that Paul goes to, there are Jews and Gentiles who have converted. Um, but Paul's sadness are for those in his of his countrymen, particularly probably those back in Israel who are are still not, who still didn't put their faith in Jesus. And Paul's even saying, I'm willing to be cursed that they would be saved, which I mean, let that sink in. Like, I'd rather go to hell. I'm willing to go to hell for eternity so that others would be saved, which is unreal. And so Paul reminds um, them, like, look, the, the Jews are who the promises go, came through. Like, this was a Jewish promise about a Jewish Messiah, and Jesus was a the, the, the Jewish person. And so, like, we were the keepers of the Torah. We were the ones who, who these promises came through that we had to teach and teach and teach. And so in a lot of ways for Israel, and, and this is driven home in Exodus, like they were God's firstborn. But um, Paul also sort of takes the moment to point out, but like not not all descendants of Abraham, like descendants of Abraham came as descendants by faith, which he's already made the argument about in here. Right. And so um, it's, it's by faith and bloodline. And, and so this whole incorporation of the Gentiles and the people that are coming in uh, by faith into this whole thing, like, makes all the law keeping of the Israelites seem to be in vain. Right. And, 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 and he's reminding them, but like, God's always done this. Like you being the firstborn doesn't mean that the secondborn gets thrown to the, to the wayside. Like God actually has had a story where he's worked and incorporated the secondborn and the outsiders and all this kind of stuff. And so like Jacob, Jacob is a prime example of that as one who ultimately is, is, is brought in and is given favor because God decided that that's how he's going to work and give favor. And so he's going to have favor on who he's going to have favor. He's going to show compassion on who he's going to show compassion. Now this is where, and, and it gets into sometimes a little bit of academic circles, but um, there, there's sometimes reformed crowds that use this passage around like God's hardening, but like that's such a small section of what Paul's talking about here versus God's, compassion and graciousness like it is only god's compassion and graciousness that anybody saved in the first place mm -hmm. and then um 
And then there's sort of a, a, a more liberal, maybe new perspective-ish section. But at the same time, like God is the one who does harden Pharaoh's heart, and it is included here. And it speaks of God hating Esau. And so um, there's some sovereignty both over God's graciousness to enter into and, and redeem anybody and, and God's sovereignty over the fact that there's rejection as well. There's wrath as well. And so um, Paul's pre- presenting both sides as part of the story. I think we're learning here too, or we're being reminded that not only Jewish people are Israel. Israel is not necessarily a a genetic race, but it's a people who worship Yahweh as God. God's sons and daughters are those who obey. So just because you're a biological descendant of Abraham does not make you part of this line. Like Ishmael, for example. Yeah. And, and if and there's a controversial question of like, well, that's not fair. Like, why do, why would we have to follow all the laws and do all these things and do this for thousands of years? And then the Gentiles just get to to come in. And I think Paul's response is be like, well, that's not your place. Like God, God has favor. And, and if God, what if God has made, created and used wicked, sinful people in order for his power and might to, to be played out? Like we as Jews should, should know that we've, we've seen that. Like the fact that he's even gracious towards us, it is an example of undeserved grace, like um, which he he pulls out in this quote from Isaiah, and then he speaks of Hosea with a sort of like God's willingness to restore this rebellious group, but because there's a remnant that are faithful, and so he goes on to, to quote some of these Old Testament passages in a way that his Jewish people hearing these stories would be like, you know what, yeah, like. This is the story. Like, get the, this isn't new. Like, God has been telling us this in the past. And like, God's willingness to 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 be gracious to people that don't deserve graciousness is the story that we know and has been mm-hmm. told to us in the past. Yeah, I think this is the part that's hard for us to. One of the parts, I suppose, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around is that we really don't have the right to challenge or question because we are God's created ones. Uh, Perhaps God hardens and shows mercy in order that those who have been shown mercy may know the riches of his glory, including the Gentiles. But uh, we don't fully know and we don't necessarily get the, the privilege of asking and being answered because we are, we are the created, we are the pots and God is the potter. Yeah. And Paul wraps up this whole section, this like sadness about his brothers with a pretty strong word where he's sort of like, so am I saying that the Gentiles who didn't have the law are righteous by faith and my Jewish brethren who did have the law, but they thought the righteousness came from the law are actually not righteous. And he's basically like, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Um, he doesn't have like a counter argument. He's like, that. that's it. Um, and then Paul uses these two different Isaiah passages, which like are brilliantly almost like counterintuitive. Like he uses an earlier one where it's, where he's speaking of um, there's this rock that God is setting and it's a, it's a, it's a trap or a snare. It's a stumbling block. But Isaiah also speaks of this rock later and it says like, it's, it's the source of salvation. So which is it a stumbling block or salvation? And, and, and Paul's saying like for my Jewish brethren, like they're stumbling over it, but all they need to do is believe in it. And it would bring salvation. That's Jesus. The one who has mercy, like that's where their salvation lies. But there's, they're still thinking that it's their righteousness. Like these are the people that are zealous. Like Paul's so broken over this. Like the, my Jewish brethren are so zealous for the things of God, but they think that their righteousness comes from obeying and, and doing all the things and checking off the list and they missed it. And I wish they wouldn't have. And, and if only they understand that righteousness of God is actually in Jesus. It comes from God through Jesus. And it's an invitation to free and scandalous grace. And I wish they weren't buying into the, the lie that, 
if you obey that God will be okay with you. Mm. Yeah. If, if you're listening to this and if you know someone who practices another religion that's works-based, just stop for a moment and pray for them or pray for, you know, I don't know, maybe the background you came from that was a works-based Christianity. But this study of the book of Romans should just cause us to treasure this free gift of grace in God more than we ever have before. The fact that we cannot earn it based on our behavior or our works. We cannot earn God's favor, but it is given to us as a free gift through and from Christ. So pray for the people who don't know that and embrace the goodness of that promise that that we need to continue to hear over and over again. Yeah. It's hard in a day and age sometimes we live in where um, everybody gets to heaven. There's, there's sort of this super low, low bar of, um, kind of this universalism that, um, that grace doesn't seem as scandalous in sort of our cultural setting that we live in. And sometimes, yeah, the church sometimes does put um, start counteracting that by talk, speaking about sin, by speaking about brokenness. But like, I, I hope we we can revel in probably the time that Paul's writing, and and in a way that so many, whether Roman and Greek or Jewish, would would have tended towards practices of legalism to just hear just how scandalous the gospel really is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in our tendencies, like we, we still do that. Like even, even my non-Christian neighbor will be like, well, like you still have to be this amount of good and stuff like that. And, and Paul's like, throw away all checkmark understanding of, of what makes you acceptable. Like that is what the gospel does. It throws that in the trash uh, because Jesus has fulfilled that for you. And so um, that's where we, we sometimes need to engage with our neighbors and friends and even our own heart around just how scandalous that really is and how counterintuitive and counter flesh counter counter sometimes, um, our worldly way of thinking, um, because we, we, we like merit, we like earning things and when we think it's unfair when that's not how it works. And so, um, but that's how God works. Mm. Psalm 44. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's kind of a long psalm. I guess yep. not like 119, but we see kind of a whole story of redemptive history here. We see God working and providing for Israel, um, how it seems for a moment that he's rejected them, but he's He's not forever. Jesus will come and or we, I guess, can look forward to that and reading the psalm and see how he makes a way for his people. Yeah, it feels a bit lamenty. Like he's definitely remembering what God has done before and um, desiring for that now, but he seems to... Uh, or the sons, uh, the multiple writers maybe, uh, are lamenting sort of the recent suffering and are appealing to God, trying to understand if it's a result of their own sin or not. And but they're sort of calling on God to to still do those mighty acts that He's done in the past. Yeah. And then Proverbs twenty seven. Yeah, I think there's a lot of different relationship components in here. And the ultimate command is to be a gentle and honest friend. We don't get to say bless your heart to people, uh, be truth speakers, be loving and be, um, be honest and gentle in how we treat others in relationship. Yeah. There's some awesome one-liners too. And 
like as I iron sharpens iron as so one person sharpens another. And just so you know, like if you've ever been around a blacksmith sharpening iron, it's hot and there's a lot of sparks. And so sometimes we try to soften what iron sharpening iron might look like, but it, it's relational conflict, but it does help sharpen other people. Uh, do not boast about tomorrow for you do not know what a day may bring, which um, certainly gets picked up in the new Testament ideas of, of, um, trusting in God for today. Uh, and then the wounds of a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. And so, um, that, that's such a good piece of wisdom that, um, those that might take that piece of iron that might say harsh words to you from a good friend, those, those words should be trusted. But, um, those that butter you up, like, ah, that's, that's just deceptive. And that's manipulative. Yeah, there's kind of two ways to read it. You read it as the one who's on the receiving end of those things, but also are you the kind of friend who gently and in love is willing to create the sparks or to wound a friend because you love them? All right, next week. Uh, So just keep looking for parallels with Elisha to Joshua and Christ. I just think it's really fun to try to figure that out because it's there. And then in the New Testament, we're going to hit on some more practical life sort of things in Romans 12. So I want to challenge you as you read it. It's really easy to look at that kind of as a list, especially the second half of Romans 12. But look at it in the context of the first 11 chapters of the book. Why is Paul landing here at this time in writing this book? Yeah, and so, and as we encounter one of the more popular stories in Elisha's history with Naaman, it's always an interesting question. Like, what do we make of Naaman by the end of the story? Like, what do we think of Elisha telling him to go in peace right after what he says? Like, does he seem redeemed or not? I think it's it's a, a fair question. And then the New Testament, uh, Paul seems to spend quite a bit of chapter 10 um, quoting Old Testament after Old Testament after Old Testament. And maybe do the work of looking up a few of those. Like, what's the context of going on in that quote? Mm-hmm. And what are the stories? What might Paul, um, if his Jewish leaders really know those stories well, what might they be hearing out of that story? So that's it for me this week. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Thank you.